China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Zoe Liu, a Fellow for International Political Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Today we'll be discussing her new book, Sovereign Funds, How the Communist Party of China Finances Its Global Ambitions. Zoe, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jude. So first question for you, as it is with all the guests, is I'd love to know a bit more about you, your background, where are you from, how did you get interested in studying China, China's economic strategy, and what are you working on now at CFR? That's a fantastic question, Jude, and uh, I appreciate the question uh, from an esteemed scholar like you. Especially, you know, it's asking about where I come from and uh, background about myself. I grew up in China in an era where, you know, it's um, my generation is the so-called one-child generation. And uh, I came to the United States, I went through college in China and um, came to the United States for graduate school. The reason I became extremely interested in the Chinese economy, not just because, you know, I grew up, witnessed the transformation of the Chinese society on a day-to-day basis, but also because... I experienced, it has always been quite puzzling for me how China transformed from a net energy exporting country into a net energy importing country. So originally, I really wanted to come to the United States to study energy and, uh, you know, cross-border pipelines and all that. And then later I started to realize, oh, actually, you know, the Gulf energy exporting economies, they actually have a problem uh, in the sense that they have way too much money to recycle. So I've become interested in the recycling of petrol dollars and all that. So part of my other research is related to the transformation of global uh, currency system, de-dollarization and things related to that. And then I spent most of my doctoral years working on sovereign wealth fund. And uh, in particular, I was puzzled that China being the major commodity importing economy, how could China have you know, in this institution called a sovereign wealth fund. So given that most of the sovereign wealth fund are, you know, fund in countries like Saudi Arabia, UAE, or Norway. So that's where I get started. Well, that's a good segue to my first question, which is asking more generically, what is a sovereign wealth fund? You know, they come in various different forms, and they're also not unique to any given regime structure. Democracies have sovereign wealth funds, autocracies have sovereign wealth funds. So before we get into China specifically and the Chinese version of a sovereign wealth fund, can you just describe at that broad level, what and how are they financed? And what is the usual intended purpose of a sovereign wealth fund? So honestly speaking, there is not necessarily a universally agreed definition uh, with regard to what is or what is not a sovereign wealth fund. You know, if you look at IMF or other uh, scholarly research, Commonly, people refer to sovereign wealth fund as government-owned investment institutions or government-owned investment vehicles. And the majority of them are capitalized in commodity exporting economies. Say, for example, back in 1955, the very first sovereign wealth fund was established in uh, Kuwait. The whole idea is to uh, find a better way to manage the sudden discovery of uh, oil wealth. So it's actually a pretty uh, prudent way to manage the money in the sense that the domestic economic size and market is very small and uh, they do not necessarily have the depth 
or the size of a financial market. So how are you going to manage the money? So basically the whole idea is to set up a savings account for the government, the contemporary generation, as well as the future generation. So we can think about this as a big piggy bank for the nation, as well as for the future generation. The whole idea is for intergenerational wealth transfer. And in addition to that, we also know that commodity, global commodity markets really suffers a lot from economic cycle, as well as other type of volatilities. So there is another aspect of it, which is for uh, fiscal stabilization, as well as hedging against volatilities in global commodities market. Can you just talk about a non-Chinese sovereign wealth fund for a second, just to give us a comparative example, whether that's in Singapore, Norway, or the Middle East? Can you just pick one and basically say, more specifically, how is it funded and, and how does it utilize this pool of savings? I'll give one example uh, in Abu Dhabi. I did field research there. Abu Dhabi is a good example in the sense that they have different varieties of sovereign wealth fund, but they are all capitalized by the um, oil wealth in Abu Dhabi. And uh, one particular interesting example, unrelevant example, would be the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, or commonly referred to as ADIA. And uh, ADIA is capitalized by the monetization of natural resources, in this case, in particular, oil wealth. And the way they manage the wealth is that the royal families establish a professional team and have the professional team manage the wealth fund in the sense that you would have to make sure that uh, the future generation would have money. Therefore, it's very much interested in diversification. And the whole idea of diversification focused on not just avoiding investing in oil and gas industry, because the whole idea is to minimize the correlation between how the oil wealth is managed as well as the financial asset is managed. So the whole idea uh, for ADIA is to use, transform God-given oil wealth into financial asset. Therefore, they invest in, let's say, soccer teams or uh, real estate and other type of financial instrument or equities. And another relevant example would be Norway. You know, before China Investment Corporation or the CIC, before CIC be emerged as the largest sovereign funds in the world last year, for a long period of time, it was Norway. Uh, Norway's sovereign wealth fund that was the largest sovereign wealth fund in the whole sovereign wealth fund community. It was also capitalized by uh, the Norwegians' sudden discovery of oil wealth. And the way they manage it is really to diversify the economy and making sure that the future generations would benefit from the oil wealth. And when they invest, they focus on diversification as well. And that's why they basically own at least 1% of uh, all the equities in global stock market. And in many ways, it's relatively easy to become a politician in Norway in the sense that about 25% of whatever policy agenda that they would want to pursue, you don't have to be worried about where to find the money. In general, in this, you might not have the data at the tip of your finger, but in general, do sovereign wealth funds earn high returns? Are these productive investors or do they all play it relatively safe? In the book, I did benchmark CIC's performance against its peers, for example, Adia, Norway, the Singapore's Temasek and all that. 
And normally, I would say it really depends upon global financial uh, market because a lot of these funds they have a huge exposure to global equities market. So they did not the return was particularly bad、uh, during the global financial crisis. But since then, they have actually recovered, and、uh, many of them could book at least a ten percent return annual basis. So let's get into the Chinese specific context, and and first, could you give us an overview of The motivations behind the creation of some of these, I think there would be a theory that well, it's not a mystery or a puzzle as to why Beijing is in this. It may not have natural resources, but it's a manufacturing powerhouse. It's earning all this FX. You know, it's got to do something with it. So that's the story. It's that simple. But as you write in the book, it's more complicated. In part because there was some reactive initiative based on exogenous events. You know exogenous shocks. Could you describe some of those external events that motivated Beijing to start thinking about how it could use some of the surplus savings to strategic advantage? Thank you for being such a attentive and a careful reader. And I did emphasize the exogenous shock in the book, and I did talk about now the importance of crisis in accelerating the establishment of China's sovereign funds. And in existing literature, I would say scholars have already discussed the importance of foreign exchange reserves in setting up China's sovereign wealth fund. The whole idea exactly. Is like what you just described. You know, well, it's probably not that puzzling that China has sovereign wealth fund because they simply have, you know, too much foreign exchange reserves. But the traditional way of reserve foreign exchange reserves management is、uh, following the principle of being very risk averse. Because you know, if you ask central、uh, central bankers in Argentina, they would tell you, well, you know, foreign exchange reserves in the central bank one day they are gone tomorrow. <laughs> so, from China's perspective, really the establishment of、uh, several foreign exchange reserve capitalized sovereign funds in China actually correlates a lot and being accelerated with exogenous shocks such as. Asian financial crisis, which triggered the policymaker in Beijing, policymakers' reevaluation of the importance of financial security. Now we know President Xi Jinping emphasized financial security a lot, and financial security. You know, Judy, you wrote about this. You know, to what extent Xi Jinping cares a lot? Do financial security has been incorporated in his whole comprehensive national security concept? But he was not the first person started this. You know, after Asian financial crisis, Zhu Rongji and the leaders at that time, Jiang Jiang. The Ming Zhu Rongji era. They started to emphasize financial security, in particular after witnessing the exogenous shock, and for in particular foreign exchange reserve, the lack of foreign exchange reserves for a lot of these Southeast Asian countries. Therefore, immediate aftermath of Asian financial crisis during that five years period of time, China's foreign exchange reserves accumulated at lightning speed, increased by more than fifty percent. And、uh, that was actually not necessarily a bad thing, given that China at that time was also experiencing a domestic crisis, which is the non-performing loans crippled all the major Chinese state-owned commercial banks. So, around、uh, in the early 2000s, more specifically around 2002. 
basically the the whole debate started with among policymakers with regard to well you know we are having a, a very urgent banking crisis and uh, what are we going to do with it so at that time ministry of finance was supposed to be the guard of commercial banks but ministry of finance really didn't have the capacity to recapitalize the bank so at that time the central bank the people's bank of china stepped in and uh, they did something very innovative which is using part of china's foreign exchange reserves established special policy vehicle called central huijin and give it the mission to say, well, this is how we are going to use central huijin to recapitalize the bank. The reason I think I say is innovative is for two reasons. The first reason is that this is the first time that the the Chinese policymakers decided that they are going to use foreign exchange reserves to do something domestic. And then the second reason is because well, it definitely looks bad if Ministry of Finance or Central Bank stepped in and say, we are doing a major bank bailout now. And uh, they do this, establish a central huijin. Guess what? This is a market-oriented or market-faced company. And we are using the company to deal with the banking crisis. You know, this has nothing to do with the central bank. So from that perspective, you, the timing is quite interesting in the sense that China joined the WTO with the help of the United States at the end of 2001. So at that time, I think China was still very much eager to impress the international community, saying that, yes, we have this domestic crisis, but we do not want politics or the urgency to solve a domestic crisis to hinder our integration into the market-based economy. I was just trying to quickly skim through the book to find the quote earlier on, but you do emphasize a few times in the book how this hybrid approach, utilizing markets or the appearance of markets to drive what are domestic policy and political priorities was a and that is in keeping with a lot of the sort of hybrid approach that the party has taken to economics and politics and how it has blended the two, sometimes masking politics for markets, but oftentimes I think here underappreciating that the role of markets within politics going the other way in China. One question I was going to ask is, as China in this early period was conceptualizing a sovereign fund where was it looking for inspiration in terms of governance structures, models? Maybe that was more iterative because obviously Central Huijin, when it first started, do doesn't look like Tomasek. But I'm going to blend my timelines here. But if, but even as it's, we're going to talk about CIC a little bit later, but as it's sort of moving to more explicitly create some of these sovereign funds, who did it see as the appropriate external or international models to borrow or learn from or did it? It actually did. And uh, this is um, very much like China's entire reform and open, open up a process. We look to the South, look at uh, Temasek, exactly as you said, look at Temasek as a good model. Because, uh, but Temasek is slightly different from the Chinese version because it's really a government, major government holding company. It manages a lot of uh, state-owned enterprises. So in many ways, it's more like I would say uh, Temasek would be more like the financial version of um, SASAC, the institution that governs all the state-owned enterprises. And uh, when they established the Central Huijin, they didn't really, it was uh, for the purpose of addressing domestic banking crisis, making sure that the banks are, the banks didn't fail, and more importantly, helping the banks to be restructured, hence listed on stock exchanges. And they achieved the mission. 
but as a central Huijin evolved, it started to look more like a financial version of Temasek, the whole idea of having central Huijin not just bail out the banks, but also help restructuring China's domestic security brokerage firms, as well as policy-oriented uh, policy banks, such as China uh, Development Bank. So it has suddenly become this major shareholder representing the party, representing the Chinese government, but it is a government-owned entity. And it's a company, incorporated company, rather than simply a government institution. So from that perspective, and I, you know, in my interview, I did talk with people uh, who either currently working at uh, Central Huijing or uh, former Central Huijing employees. They did talk about the policy borrowing aspect from Singapore in particular. But they also talk about as they evolve, as they, they become more mature, they also look at other international practitioners, in particular Norway as well. One of the other things you emphasize in the book is that China might not best be described as having sovereign wealth funds, or SWFs as they're known in, a, in abbreviated form, but something you call an, an SLF or leveraged. And indeed, the title of the book is not Sovereign Wealth Funds, How the Communist Party of China Finances Its Global Ambitions, it's Sovereign Funds. So emphasizing the sovereign, but can you talk a bit about why an, an SLF is a better description from an, an SWF? And I, I think the question for us lay people is, who cares what the middle letter is if we're thinking of these primarily as state capacity to mobilize capital for policy purposes? Yeah, that's an excellent point, Jude. And the reason I wanted to use the sovereign funds is because I do not want to, uh, you know, offend people who call China's sovereign funds as a sovereign wealth fund. But, uh, you know, from a rigorous scholarly perspective, I do think there is a very, very important distinction in terms of the commodity, traditional commodity-based sovereign wealth fund, which are capitalized basically by unincumbent God-given natural resources. You just simply monetize the, the resources and here, there you go. That's your God-given wealth. Whereas in the case of China, you know, China, it's a different story in that foreign exchange reserves are accumulated in this case through a systematic financial repression. Scholars did a lot of research into that. And it's not encumbered in the sense that through a systematic serialization process, you literally have to encumber it with the issuance of domestic currency. Can you explain for the audience what financial repression is? So financial repression is a suite of policies that literally with the ultimate goal to make sure that the government would have uh, control over capital flows. And uh, in the case of China, it can be done through capital controls, through the government to keep a cap on interest rate. And related to that would be exchange rate as well, and then a relatively uh, stringent tax regime. And throughout the history, uh, different countries might practice this slightly different. But in the case of China, uh, financial repression systematically has been expressed with the ultimate goal to make sure that the government and the party in particular would have the ultimate decision with regard in terms of channeling money into specific uh, sectors. And the whole idea is to make sure that there is the Chinese people's savings are can be kept inside the domestic financial system rather than in our Western system context. It would we 
prioritize the free flow of capital. So it's a different, the policy agenda would be different. And there is a good reason to do that because capital is a very important aspect for economic development. So really distinguishing wealth accumulated through basically digging natural resources out of the ground, selling them, and then using that pool of savings versus, what again, you say financial repression, which is in part trapping savings from individuals within a state system, and then in part using those, pooling and using those to for sort of policy purposes. That's the very important distinction. Basically, that's the source of money, right? And then in the creation of these funds, it's also very different in the sense that if you look at the balance sheet of sovereign wealth fund, they normally, it's not that when the government established the funds, it's not the government did not issue bond, say, did, did not borrow money from either domestic banking system or from international system, say, hey, you know, I want to do this and I don't have the resources, what am I going to do? Or is the resources is already there. But in the case of China, China, because of existing rules and regulations, the government simply cannot just say, I'm going to use the foreign exchange reserves to do risky investment. This is not the case. So in the creation of Central Huijin, the moment when foreign exchange reserves are being used to capitalize the Central Huijin, those foreign exchange reserves are gone. So basically, that's a stringent, it's a narrow definition of what can be considered as foreign exchange reserves. The moment they are invested, they are taken out of the pocket of the central bank and used for risk-bearing investment, basically you transform uh, foreign exchange reserves into some other types of asset. And in the case of uh, CIC, China Investment Corporation, the leverage aspect becomes more explicit in the sense that Ministry of Finance literally issued a bond, special purpose bond, and used the bond proceed to buy foreign exchange reserves outside of the PBOC. So from this perspective, you can literally witness an expansion of the government balance sheet, and that is explicit leverage. I wanted to now move to talking about three, well, two actors and one category of actors. So you'd mentioned Central Hojin, you'd mentioned some of its original founding intention as dealing with with non-performing loans. We have China Investment Corporation, which now is Central Huijin is a part of CIC, but was formed separately. And then we have a whole ecosystem or cluster of investment firms around the People's Bank of China subsidiary SAFE, which is the State Administration of Foreign Exchange. I wanted to go just through these. Starting with Huijin, you've already talked about the origins of it. I wonder if you can talk about the evolution of it. How did Huijin move or where did it move after the NPL issue? So Central Huijin's reform, right now, in retrospect, now we realize you know, with ICBC and all these Chinese major, four major commercial, state-owned commercial banks become relatively success, quite successful. Now, the, now we know actually Central Huijin's restructuring of the the banks are quite successful, right? So the successful experience of Central Huijin in restructuring all these domestic banks basically gives Central Huijin a life on its own. It's the same as, you know, institutions, once they established, they took a life on, its, on their own. And uh, apart after restructuring of domestic banks, it moved on to deal with China's, uh, the other aspect of financial instability issue that also threatened 
uh, China's financial security at that time. With, with regard to the around 2005, the domestic security brokerage firms and they suffered from uh, severe distress. And uh, the way that Central Huijin did that was, again, very much similar to what it did to the bank's recapitalization and all that. And related to that, Central Huijin also participated in the recapitalization of uh, China uh, Development Bank, as well as China Import-Export Credit Insurance Agency, so which is commonly referred to as a Sinoshore. And after China Investment Corporation, or CIC, was established in 2007, Central Huijin originally was a special purpose vehicle, was basically bought by the newly established CIC as CIC's domestic arm. So basically, if you look at a CIC's current structure, it has there are two segments. One is the domestic-faced Central Huijin, which basically is the shareholder-in-chief of all major Chinese financial institutions. And then you have the international face of the CIC, which uh, invests in global market and mostly in advanced economies. Now let's move on. We've been talking about CIC, but when was it founded? I wonder if you can talk about its this, that sort of moment when it was founded, which in, in retrospect was not an ideal time to be starting a financial institution. But also, can you talk a bit about how CIC has evolved in the ensuing 15 years since its founding? The CIC was formally capitalized in 2007, summer 2007. And uh, at that moment, it really, you're, not, you're right, it was not, it was an unfortunate timing in the sense that when CIC was established and it was given 200 billion US dollars, you know, cap in and the money comes from China's foreign exchange reserves. And um, at the time of establishment, they only had slightly less than a dozen people managing a big amount of money. So there was an urgency to reduce cash drag, the idea that once you have money, you have to invest it. Otherwise, you know, the money sitting there is going to be lost opportunity, right? So... Uh, limited people, very little experience in international investment. They were looking at, you know, the best talent around the world possible. And uh, they ended up with making the first, very first deal with investing in Blackstone. And uh, at the, that time, in the, when they, they made the investment, again, in retrospect, now we know it was really bad timing. They did the pre-IPO subscription in 2007. And then during the financial crisis, the stock price tanked a lot. The timing was also a little bit awkward in that the moment after CIC did a pre-IPO subscription, the founder of uh, Blackstone, Mr. Uh, Schwarzman and uh, Mr. Peterson, they sold a combined share of, um, they sold a huge chunk of their ownership. So the, the reason I mentioned this is because, you know, Finance 101, the idea that uh, if you think your share or your, your stuff is, is undervalued, you, you don't sell them, right? So after CIC bought in and, uh, you know, the, the founder basically sold their shares, uh, as part of the IPO process. That also tells you something about the investment. But then again, you know, CIC, you know, throughout this 15 years process, it's, um, you know, it, it experienced during the global financial crisis in particular, their investment suffered losses, but they were paper losses. 
And that did get them in trouble because I remember having this conversation when I was doing field research in China. There was a, my cab driver asked me, "Where do you go?" I said, "I want to go to the Bali Dasha. That's you know where CIC's headquarters is." And then the, the, the guy asked that the guy literally unsolicited conversation. He started to say, "Oh, do you know that、uh, there is this institution called、uh, Zhongtao, like CIC, the Chinese name of CIC?" He said, "You know that is basically that that is treason. You know the the, the company did not manage our asset well." And、uh, they are losing a lot of money. So I find it interesting that、uh, CIC, you know, you just do not hear a cab driver talking about a sovereign funds. The final bucket is safe and safe-related entities. That I wonder if you can just describe broadly, you know, who a few of the big actors are and where are they focused. Safe has several entities that do not. All show up on Safe's annual report. So, if you look at the Safe's annual report in two 2020 report and 2019 report, you would find that they disclose four overseas offices plus in、uh, Hong Kong plus one office in Frankfurt. But it has more than that. For example, it has a domestic-based entity called the Buttonwood, and the Buttonwood Investment Company actually was created to capitalize. Another fund called the Silk Road Fund, and uh, uh, in addition to creation, capitalizing the Silk Road Fund, it was also participated in the restructuring of China Development Bank as well as Import Export Bank. This Buttonwood affiliated with Central Huijin, also、uh, with, with not Central Huijin but、um, Safe, it also created established four other domestic investment companies that、uh, participated in the、uh, stabilization of China's、uh, stock market back in 2015. We could keep talking about this for a long time, but cognizant of time, I, I wanted to ask. So you've got this array of. Sovereign funds who are in all sorts of activities. I mean, we could spend a long time on the safe ones because there's a very long. For folks who are saying, "I'd love to know more," of course, there's a very long chapter on each of these: Huijin, CIC, and safe funds, detailing what they're doing, how they were funded, where their investments are, which are you know global in nature. And unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all of that, but it does. Lead me to my final few questions, which is the international environment and the domestic environment for these funds is evolving rapidly and is very different from where it was even just five years ago. Thinking about the the amount of money some of these funds had in, let's say, 2015, 2016, to be investing globally, we had the Belt and Road Initiative really kicking up. It felt like sky's the limit. So, question number one is. In an environment of slowing growth, what appear to be increasing fiscal constraints, are the is the space for global investment from some of these funds shrinking? If not shrinking, in is it at least modulating in light of these new these new lower growth dynamics? I would argue that there will still be、uh, Chinese sovereign funds looking forward to invest globally, and part of the reason is because right now the cost of China to do indigenous innovation is very high. And exactly as you were describing, you know, the fiscal constraints, domestic fiscal constraints, the lack of、uh, capital, really make ha- investing in overseas. Cutting-edge technology firms very important, and、uh, in fact, we've seen we have been witnessing 
Chinese sovereign funds transforming themselves in order to have access to foreign market. And one such example, and the starting point would be around 2017, you know, during the Trump administration. And starting from 2017, CIC in particular has entered into more partnerships with leading uh, institutional investors in the West. And it launched several bilateral cooperation investment funds. For example, one is CIC's partnership with Goldman Sachs. It's the U.S.-China Investment Corporation Fund. There is also Japan-China Industrial Corporation Fund, China and uh, Germany, and the China and France. And a lot. And there is also China-Russia Investment Corporation Fund, as many of them. So the idea really is to structure deal in order to not necessarily put a CIC as at the driver's seat, but you know having local host to help CIC get access to foreign market, and this presents a challenge for investment screening. Margaret Pearson, Meg Rithmeyer, and Kelly Tsai had a really good long article in International Security called "China's Party State Capitalism: An International Backlash." I'm curious if the changing geopolitical and international environment of growing scrutiny of overseas Chinese investments, whether that's through stepped up inbound investment screening or just general political hostility, is also going to be a constraining or modulating feature of sovereign fund investment strategy moving forward. Do you see that now or do you suppose that that might become a growing constraint for them? I do see that happening uh, in the space of Chinese expansion, global expansion of sovereign funds investment from China. And uh, in fact, global backlash against China's uh, strategic investment already influenced, had negative impact on some of the institutional structures of China's sovereign funds. Like for CIC, again, CIC is one example. It used to, for, in the broader context of uh, making direct investment or direct equity investment in strategic firms overseas. CIC elevated its direct investment department into a specific subsidiary. But as of last year, because of stringent investment screening and all that, they not only lost people from that uh, department, but also simply had to close down that subsidiary and merge it back into just a broader CIC operation. So from that perspective, it did have negative impact. But we are also observing that China or the Chinese Communist Party and policymakers are adjusting to the changes. And instead of just focusing on the sovereign funds, they are also transforming state-owned enterprises. The whole idea under Xi Jinping, really, he has been putting out this argument saying that the party and uh, uh, should not just manage the personnel of the state-owned enterprises, but also focusing on capital management. Therefore, there has been a huge drive to restructure or redefine the role of SASAC, State-Owned Asset Supervision and Administration Commission, trying to make SASAC enhancing its role in managing capital. Therefore, we have we've so far we've witnessed close to 19 firms, 19 centrally owned uh, state-owned companies are being restructured into state capital investment companies. Final question is on the role of politics. You've seen. Well, indeed, in the one thing I notice is in the subtitle. I think if this book was written ten years ago, it would have been how Beijing finances its global ambitions. Now it's how the Communist Party of China finances its global ambitions. I suspect that being part of the shift to where we're now understanding more 
or at least putting into the front and center the role of, of the party. I'd be curious if, as we've seen domestically within China, more scrutiny of the investment and, and capital space. We've seen discipline inspection committees move, going around to financial institution. We've seen increasing corporate governance restructurings to bring, be, make more explicit the role of the party in strategic decisions across all manner of private and state firms. How have politics affected these sovereign funds? I think this is also a very important difference between China's sovereign funds versus the rest of the uh, sovereign wealth fund community in the sense that there is a lack of transparency in terms, not just in terms of their portfolio, you know, lack of opaque portfolio has always been the case for many sovereign funds. But the case for China is that at a certain senior management level, the party's HR department have to be in charge of approving who is going to be installed for this particular position. So from that perspective, especially if you look at the C CEOs and uh, chief investment officers, uh, chief risk managers uh, of all the firms, they are not just some random person. They are party members and uh, with the promotion of the recent person, the recent CIC manager, for example, Peng Chuan, he is somebody who had a lot of financial expertise inside China's banking system, but not at the global stage. So from that perspective, we, we did see the rise of parties' influence and in particular emphasize party loyalty. And then I'll just close off by saying that We've all, since President Xi Jinping come to power, or in this case, Chairman Xi Jinping, <laughs> if that's the right word, he has been actively using sovereign funds to finance the party's agenda. And the BRI is one good example. And uh, under since the launch of BRI, he not only just... Um, capitalized the Silk Road Fund, but also used the sovereign funds to capitalize a couple of China. He used, he basically influenced the Chinese foreign, a Chinese foreign exchange reserve management to capitalize a series of other BRI related funds, such as China, Latin America, China, Africa. And once he make a big announcement, you see the PBOC people come out and say, we are going to capitalize this. So from that perspective, we do see the rise of the party, not directly say, I want you to do this. But once the party's agenda is said, now you see people starting to finance it. So this is such a, a rich and, and important book. And I think this is one for folks who are trying to, whether that's understanding Chinese grand strategy or understanding the Chinese economy, understanding patterns of Chinese investments overseas, or just interested, honestly, in intellectual history of China's reform, this is such a, an interesting, important, and helpful book. So commend it to everyone who's remotely interested. Don't let the title of you know Sovereign Fund make it sound niche. It's not a niche book. This covers a lot of ground of, of China as a global financial actor over the last 25 years. So first of all, I just want to thank you for this just fantastic piece of research, which is written so clearly and conveys just such complicated history, I think, quite concisely. So thank you for this. Thank you for your, your research and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And before I go, I also wanted to say, uh, show my appreciation to you kindly inviting me, but also, you know, your scholarship. You are among the very first few people to recognize the comeback of the party in influencing, not just the government, but the comeback of the party in influencing the economy in your fantastic China's New Red Guard book. And I really enjoyed reading it. Well, good. I now know who the one reader of that book was. It's, glad, it's, it's very nice to meet you. 
Uh, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So thanks again. Thanks to everyone for listening and look forward to seeing you in person at some point, Zoe. Yes, thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 